Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Ecce, an artist and art consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I interview artists, cultural producers, designers, and funders on how art in public space happens and how to create more equitable and inclusive projects in public space. I also share my tips on how to curate and commission art projects for your business, how I run my art consulting business, Distill Creative, and how I'm developing my own art practice. You can listen to this episode wherever you listen to podcasts or watch it on YouTube. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and support this project on Patreon. I produce, edit, and well, do everything myself. So your support keeps this project going. If you're interested in my art consulting services or artwork, check out distillcreative.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week on First Coat, we have J. Manuel Menzilla, also known as Man Man. Man Man is principal of Fantastica, leading placemaking, design, and branding projects. Fantastica specializes in transformative projects to vitalize underutilized assets and unlock economic potential. Manman has worked on the creation of the first New York City Department of Transportation, DOT, public plaza in Dumbo's Pearl Street Triangle, development of the citywide standard for DOT street seats with locations in downtown Brooklyn, Park Slope, Hudson Yards, and East New York, the design of outdoor spaces for the Dumbo Heights development in the Brooklyn Tech Triangle, as well as many other projects. He's also a co-founder of UNI, a smart, modular, customizable pod that provides secure parking for scooters and bicycles, as well as public space amenities. Uni is currently raising money on Republic, so if you're interested, you can find the link in the show notes. In this episode, we talk about how we can co-create more vibrant public spaces, the impact of COVID-19 on public spaces, and how to transform short-term public space experiments into long-term policies so we can all have better public spaces. If you like this podcast, please let me know by leaving a review. And just a reminder, you can also support this podcast on Patreon. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on First Coat. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Of course. My name is Manuel Mancilla. People know me as Manman, Manuel Mancilla, I'm a M&M. And I'm a designer and an architect. And I focus mainly on modular toolkits for public spaces. And we can get into that, you know, further as we as we get on with the conversation. What realm would you say that you work in most? I think I think public space has been sort of like a like a recurring theme and and, and sort of like the principal area of focus throughout my career. But we've done a share of, you know, I guess outdoor outdoor spaces as well in privately owned spaces, and you know, quite a quite a bit of, of public artwork as well. How did you start designing for public space? You know, I was I was I was reading through your questions and I was I was thinking back at the at the you know what I what I would call the beginning of my career, at least in, in New York City, it was something that I that I kind of fell into and it happened kind of inadvertently because I guess I've always been uh, interested and, and, and fascinated by the intersection of design and public space in a way, you know, this idea of, of people, you know, sort of like enacting their right to be participants in the creation of a city through the creation of, of either art or public spaces. And so, you know, it was, it was around 2008 when I was doing a, a master's in urban design at Pratt I got my first internship at a, at a business improvement district in Dumbo. And so we were talking about doing, I mean, 
placemaking was 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 kind of like a new thing back then, right? And so, and and that's sort of like, I think it was also a little bit of a, of a zeitgeist of, of the times that we were going through with some of the other things that were happening. I guess the economic crisis also played a big role in people having more time and less resources. I feel like those were very symptomatic, right? And suddenly, you know, finding ourselves in a in a neighborhood that that had a community, but by many was seen as as not a neighborhood, right? And and so this idea of starting to create public spaces with very little time and very little resources in a collaborative way is is something that I that I got really interested on early on, but but not in a guerrilla sort of way, you know, but more in a legitimized way, you know, where where it was it was happening through the city ag- agency or agencies, right? Through the business improvement district and talking together with, you know, some of the other city agencies like the Department of Transportation or the Parks Department, right? And so, you know, making them aware of the needs of a new and sort of like growing residential community in a place that was transitioning from post-industrial to a residential, right? And it was right at that time because it, it coincided with, with a rezoning of a big chunk of Dumbo at that, at that time, right? So what was one of the first projects you worked on? It's funny. I was also thinking about that. And the Pearl Street Triangle seems like, like the epicenter of everything, right? And even today, I guess, if you, if you, if you punch in, uh, you know, placemaking on Google, you'll, you'll get the Pearl Street Triangle in there mm-hmm. as one of the top hits, right? It's so bizarre. Like, if I think about it, you know, back, like, like a lot of people were very, like very against the idea of creating a public space or turning a parking lot into a park, into into a public space, right? Like people were like, "What are you guys trying to do?" First of all, it was like, "Where is this?" and <laughs> and and what are you trying to do? And the th- and their third question is, "Why?" Like, why do you guys want to do this? Like, who would ever want to sit there? Like, who <laughs> would ever want to spend you know a lunch or 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 a coffee, you know, at that in that space, right? And and I guess it was it was Tucker Reed, my partner, who was the head of the business improvement district, and Janet Sarikan, who was still at the Department of Transportation, who actually, you know, started to talk about this idea. And and you know, she saw it, it was either because she believed in the idea or because Tucker wouldn't stop calling her, or a combination of the two, right? It, I, I'm sure it lies somewhere in between, <laughs> somewhere in the middle, right? And they finally told us, all right, go ahead, we'll call it a temporary, you know, a temporary project. And yes, you know, just just go ahead. It's most likely not going to work, but you know, it's like go do it. And it was literally Tucker, myself. You know, it was somebody, two other people at the bid, and we were like literally painting, you know, that triangle on a Friday afternoon. We bought like two cases of beer, and we invited some of the other community folks to like come, some of the other artists and community folks to come and help out. And it became, you know, what I what I then like to describe as my own definition of placemaking in, in the way that I think about it is, is, you know, this idea of the stone soup, right? It's like, if you're familiar with the story of the stone soup is like this kid who's walking through a forest and knocks on you know, some stranger's, you know, hut and says, oh, can I borrow, can I please, you know, come in and borrow your kitchen because I want to boil this stone and make myself a stone soup. And, you know, this old lady is like, what are 
racy idea and what a curious little boy, but sure, come in. And as he's like boiling his stone or his little rock, he, he's like, oh, I see that you have some leftover, you know, scallions and, 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 and can I borrow a pinch of salt? And, you know, before you know it, he's like putting a bunch of things into his soup and the soup starts to smell really, really good. And the, and the lady starts to get more and more involved. And before you know it, she's called her friends and it becomes a party, right? And so this idea of how you can prompt people with an opportunity to collaborate and start bringing their own thinking and their own resources into a space, right? Or a meal, right? And how that sort of like develops new ideas, new spaces, new events, but more importantly, new connections among people. And I think that those connections are long lasting and sometimes last, you know, even longer than the spaces or the events themselves that most of the times are ephemeral. Like here we are talking, you know, I'm talking about Tucker and, and, and Jeanette Sarikan and, you know, we're, we're, we still have these stories that connect us, you know, because of this moment and this, this space that happened, right? And those connections and those relationships, you know, uh, sometimes outlive the spaces, even though the, the Pearl Street Triangle is a very successful space and still there. And it's, it's very loved and cherished by that community, right? Yeah, it's definitely. Sorry, my, my cat's crying. You want to say hi, Kike? Hello. <laughs> Pearl Street Triangle was something, my office was right by there. So it was something that I really liked going to. And it was just such a casual way to be in public space with other people and I think that's maybe a good it's kind of like with all design like when you don't notice it that's how you know it's been done really well when it's just really seamless and easy to access and feels really comfortable and I think Dumbo's been an interesting place more recently because I haven't been over there lately since we've moved and I know a lot of people have moved out of the building we were in specifically so I'm I'm curious how those spaces are continuing but um, all the parks around by the water basically like the so socializing that you could be in public space and you can beautify or kind of make these small upgrades to something that otherwise is just like concrete or a parking lot sometimes helps create other things around it that now seem so normal in Dumbo but weren't even expected to be a thing. Correct. Not only filled a void but it also sort of like blurred a, a, a very strong boundary which was the, the train right between mm -hmm. you know sort of like the, the east and west side of, of the neighborhood, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that with a lot of the, of the more successful examples of placemaking, you know, like to your question about what is a successful, you know, placemaking project, I think that when it spreads, when it becomes contagious, right? Because mm -hmm. how the Pearl Street Triangle triggered then the opening of the archway, right? Because mm -hmm. it became mm -hmm. evident not only that people would go and that people mm -hmm. would use it and that people would help grow it, right? But it, but it also, you know, pointed to other opportunities around it, right? Like, why not reopen the archways that had been closed for like decades, right? And now that becomes, you know, another key to this puzzle, right? And how you then start to add the city bikes to it and the, you know, all new furniture and, and new greenery. And eventually it becomes a capital project, which I, I believe is going to close one of those two streets, either Pearl Street or the other one next mm -hmm. to it. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be a real plaza, right? After, geez, after you know, 20 years or so, right? Right. Something that started temporary can now be something that will be maintained 
for hopefully ever. I like what you said about why not. Like, I think a lot of times these small interventions help people question, why not do this? Why not do that? Why not try this? As opposed to just not thinking about it. Because there are so many spaces that both of us probably walk by every day or everyone listening probably walks by every day. And you just you just assume like that's going to stay closed or that parking lot's always going to be a parking lot or we're never going to have a park here. But sometimes just doing a small thing can help just be the impetus to get people thinking, why not try this? Which brings me to the DOT street seats. Can you tell us a little bit about just what is it and what have you done to, to work on to create it and mold that? Sure, and 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 you know it's 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 funny because it's it, it it's all as as you see as we as we go through this you know interview it's all part of one story right because because what happened was when Tucker moved from from being the PD at the Business Improvement District in Dumbo he then became the president of the Downtown Brooklyn Partnership in Downtown Brooklyn right and so you know Downtown Brooklyn at the time this must have been like 2012 if my memory serves me right. Maybe, maybe a little bit later, maybe like 2015. And downtown Brooklyn back then was very different, right? And so we were really thinking of how we could activate some of the streets that were, you know, you, there wasn't really that much going on. And downtown Brooklyn, you know, to the nearest like public space, it didn't have that many public space. So what can we do with all these side streets, right? And so the idea of parklets which was really going in places like San Francisco, but not so much in New York City, right, came about. But the way that, that folks were thinking about parklets back then was more of like an opportunity to showcase how designers, you know, how good designers were, right? Mm -hmm. And so you would see these very beautiful, but very, you know, intricate sort of like parklets popping up, you know, in places like San Francisco, right? But, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything, you know, at least from what I found at the time, it wasn't anything that could be grown at scale and it wasn't that affordable. You know, it wasn't like, like really cost effective to, to make such a sophisticated and intricate installation, especially in downtown Brooklyn. We didn't really have that much of a budget for it. So I started looking at, you know, this, this idea of modularity, right? And so I came up with, you know, what I like to call either a, like a Lego kit approach to parklets, right? It, 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 and it had, I had some, you know, like, like in my mind, I had some like, like very, you know, basic guidelines, you know, it should be, it should be done with, with off the shelf components that, you know, you most likely would find in like a Home Depot or a Lowe's, right? Like it should be put together with very simple tools by someone who is not like highly skilled or trained in any, in any way, like anyone with like a power drill should be able to put this thing together, right? And more, most importantly, you shouldn't need to like chase me down, you know, if, if you ever need to repair something or maintain it, like it should be very easy to maintain and it should be very easy to repair. And that those were sort of like the guiding principles to the design. So we put together this proposal to, to build not one, but three of them. And they were not going to be one parking, parking spot long, but twice as long. So, you know, it's very, very ambitious, right? Like we put together these three massive parklets and we put them, you know, on three parallel streets in downtown Brooklyn. And, you know, it was like, again, it, some of the locations people were like, why would you put like some sitting here? Like who's gonna sit there? It's like, because these, these streets where you, you, you didn't see that much people like walking around or doing stuff, right? And, 
And so there were a lot of skeptics, right? And it was a smashing success, you know, like every day you would walk by and you would find people like having lunch there or having coffee or doing a little bit of work. So it was, it was really, really successful as, as a, as a placemaking or, or public space activation. And, you know, I, I think that it was less than a year after we had unveiled those parklets in downtown Brooklyn partnership that the Department of Transportation, the head of the, of the Nick Pearson, who was the head of the of the plaza program at DOT at the time, reached out and said, man, man, we want to work with you in developing a standard design for the street seats program, citywide, right? And so they really, they, they really liked the design that we had done for the, for the Brooklyn partnership and wanted to sort of like iterate on it to come up with a design for, you know, the city, right? And that's how we started working together with, everyone at the department in a, in, you know, something that must have been like a three or four month uh, design engagement so that we could design and build the first three prototypes, I think, for the, for the standard street seats program that got deployed in, uh, in East New York. You talked a little bit about guerrilla placemaking initiatives, but what, why can't people just do whatever they want on a street? You know, that, that's a pretty good question. I like the idea of legitimizing some of these processes just because in my mind that's how they get codified into policy that's how they get enacted into medium-term and long-term decisions about places and communities right so to me it's 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 always been important to do it under the wing of a city agency and in collaboration with other city agencies right because I think that that's how that's how you get long-lasting impact when it comes to how these things, you know, go go from temporary or provisional to temporary to semi-permanent to permanent, right? Mm-hmm. But what are some issues that would come up if everyone were just doing whatever on the street, which right now is kind of what just happened this past year yeah. with um, yeah. restaurants and such? But like, for example. I've noticed more incidents with like getting out of a car or a cab, an Uber, a Lyft. And if the restaurant has their seating out where the parking spaces would be and there's no protected bike lane, then there's more chance that you're gonna hit a biker if you, like the the space for a bicyclist is much smaller when there aren't regulations about how far out something could be. Or, I mean, obviously people complain about parking with parklets uh, just having le- fewer parking spaces when the parking spaces are taken up by things like street seats or parklets or restaurant seating. Why do you think it's important to have these regulations or what, what would it prevent, I guess, if we didn't have them? Yeah, I've, look, I've always been, you know, like a big believer that regulations or in this case, limitations are, are only beneficial to ca- to creativity, right? It is within those constraints that creativity flourishes, right? And so I think that that a lot of thought needs to be needs to go into all of these aspects, right? And when you and we and when you create a situation, whether willingly or unwillingly, you know, where where anything goes, you then start running into those problems, right? And that's why it's always been my philosophy to work together with the city and within, you know, the city's constraints to come up with the more distilled, you know, pun intended, uh, solution for, 
you know, these types of approaches, right, which are necessary. It doesn't need to mean that they're, they would be limited in any way or, or that, they would be, that they would be less than what would come about if those constraints or those limitations or those guidelines weren't there, right? So it's just a matter of working with them in order to sort of like come up with a, with a solution that benefits not one specific industry, but the population at large, right? How do you think COVID-19 has, well, the pandemic in general has affected public spaces? That's a, that's a super, that's a really great question. And, and obviously I think, you know, folks like you and me have been thinking about this for, for a long time. And I don't think that we've seen all the changes that are going to come out of this. I think we're starting to see some changes, right? Because, you know, I think, I think what we've seen so far, you know, like, like a year and a half into it is very reactionary. It's like something that came out of great necessity, right? You know, responding to a crisis and, and has led to a lot of, you know, a lot of really good ideas and, and, has, and has proven that a lot of the things that were taboo to, to the city suddenly, you know, like things like parking or the lack of parking, right? Or, or things like, you know, uh, sheds or covers over parklets or, or street seats, right? Like things that could not be talked about or mentioned before, suddenly they're okay. And the city didn't go into chaos or, you know, uh, there, was, there was no panic because of these things, right? Like, then they sort of like help prove that maybe there is a way to incorporate these things, right? Now, on the other hand, you do see a lot of things that were that were put together in a very sort of like, yeah, in a very nilly-willy way, right? And so a lot of, you know, you see some beautiful examples of design and architecture, right? But but in many cases, you see things that are either, you know, not, yeah, they're not great from an aesthetic standpoint, but they're also not safe, you know, from, from like a structural integrity standpoint, right? And that's something that that is a big, no-no for me, right? It's like, how do you ensure that a lot of these structures are safe and how do you make sure that they don't, that they're not going to look like, uh, you know, shanty towns in X number of months or years, right? And I think that that's really important. And that's, that's why having, you know, specific guidelines and parameters in place is important, right? Definitely. What do you think is the future of public spaces? Well, I think just taking that thought a little bit further, right? It's like, you know, what comes after reactionary, right? What comes after ephemeral, right? What comes after, you know, we've had time to sort of like analyze and think through what we've seen so far, as far as everything that has put, been put forward, how people have reacted to it, how the city has responded or, or, or sort of like uh, uh, dealt with it right, in a way, and how do you combine all of that into, you know, new ideas, new designs, and, and, and new programs, right, either because you're going to create new ones, or you're going to build on existing ones and just amplify them or extend them or, mm-hmm. or sort of like iterate on them, right, and I think, you know, I like to think of it as a, as a sort of like a movie set, right, where right now is, is, is sort of like you're walking through a movie set and it's, and it's sort of like a resemblance of, of a reality that could be or will be, right? 
Um, and that's really exciting to me. It's like, what's going to come next, right? Once, once these spaces and these sort of like modules evolve to, uh, to uh, in, in many ways, right? Not only from the magical reality of it, right? You know, where you see a lot of the things are, are put together with, with inexpensive materials and, you know, they're, they're pretty much disposable, like in my mind, right? But what is the next sort of like the, the next iteration of that going to look like? From, from a material standpoint, but also from a user standpoint, a user experience standpoint. Like to give you one, one example, you know, we're now collaborating with, with, a, with a really great partner where we are building an outdoor dining structure, designing an outdoor dining structure that will be shared, you know, between a wine bar next door in a coffee shop, you know, and they're thinking about incorporating things like bike, bike racks or bike parking and also, you know, like trash receptacles, like something like a trash corral, right? And so the idea of adding more features to it and also sharing it with other users or other activities or uses is, I think, very exciting to me as, as how I see the, the evolution of, of what may come next, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, going from that temporary to semi-permanent and then having more, like more shared infrastructure I'm, I'm excited to hopefully see more outdoor working opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that has always been, I don't know, just kind of ignored, like no electricity, no internet in the outdoor area. And so it's hard to spend more time there. But now that we can kind of spend more time in a space, creating more like weatherproof areas where you have like an indoor outdoor experience, which, you know, in other places is very normal, but in New York City is not because of our weather. But I was just in Mexico City and it's like literally everywhere you can be inside, outside, semi inside, semi outside. And it's it's just their climate is more conducive to, to that kind of design where you can actually invest in that kind of um, space because it's you're not going to get snowed on every year but at the same time they still deal with a lot of rain but it, it also doesn't get very cold ever so i think in some ways new york city has more we just have more parameters to deal with and how we create spaces that are outdoors or semi semi outdoor spaces yeah yeah and my other partner vivian liao always says there's no such thing as bad weather there's just bad clothing right Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, to your point, I think the idea of bringing power to some of these outdoor installations or modules, right? And, and you know, that, 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 that leads to some other really exciting opportunities, right? Because I think that the connection with other activities such as outdoor, you know, work and, or outdoor exercising, right? And it's, it's exciting, but I think it's, there's another another opportunity with how these things tie into micromobility that I think it's really, really exciting, right? And so some of the work that, that we're doing with our sister company, Uni, is, is also super exciting, right? And we'll see some very exciting um, um, updates coming in the, in the near future with that one as well. Do you want to talk about fast casual? Yeah, in line with these modular outdoor activity toolkits, right? We've created one that is specifically geared towards the restaurant industry, uh, but also, you know, there's the possibility of, of, of doing outdoor work, you know, like an outdoor office uh, as well, you know, which I think has a lot of potential, like you were saying, you know, why couldn't there be 
these types of modules where you can, you know, sit down, do some work. You you have, you know, a charger for your computer or your phone, right? And you have, you know, a nice comfortable desk to sit on and some shade, right? During the warmer months. So we designed this flexible activity mo module called, called Fast Gadual. And, you know, the idea there is how can you create such an amenity that, you know, people would want to hold on to as opposed to, you know, the disposable version of it and have it redeployed, you know, every season, pretty much like how you do it with a street seats or a parklet. And so instead of thinking, what can I do as fast and, and when, with as little money as possible? And then I'm, I'm either going to have to keep retrofitting it or adding to it or taking from it. Because, you know, it's funny how in looking how the evolution of plywood shed, right, is it, it went from, you know, like a plywood parklet to a plywood shed to a winter log cabin, right? And every time they would, you would see the same couple of guys coming with more and more plywood adding or taking from it. Because then, you know, once the, the year came around, you know, it's like now they're taking off layers, right? So they're either taking panels off or they're taking the roof off or, so it's funny how that evolution. So instead of seeing that, where you have these sort of like Frankensteins all over the place, it's like one system that is, that is additive, that is designed to change with the season or change with the user, right? And, you know, to be adaptable. Because like to give you one example, we've had this one instance with, with one of our locations where the DOT had to, had to repave Broadway. So everybody on Broadway and that stretch of Broadway had to move, literally move their outdoor dining structures in like, you know, a couple of days, right? Hours to five hours to move it. And we, we actually moved it to the side, side street and it was fine. And it was, is designed for that. But a lot of the outdoor dining structures, you know, were, were either, you know, damaged or completely destroyed because they're not designed to be moved like that. Do you have any deployed right now? Yes, we have a coffee shop called Foreigner in Iron District. We have one in Krispy Kreme in Times Square in the 48th Street location. Uh, we have another one at the Daily Provisions in the Upper West Side on, on 78th in Amsterdam. And we have a, a couple more coming uh, that will be announced in the next couple of weeks later in the fall. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put links to those addresses and to Fast Casual in the show notes so people can check it out. Given your, your work in public space, how would you define a really good public space? Or what should every public space have? That's a really, really good question. I mean, let me put it this way. The spaces that I like to hang out in will be very diverse in nature. Like when you see a combination of all kinds of folks like doing all kinds of activities and people really making their own little version of a public space, right? And what that means is using it in their own personal and intimate way is what I think counts for a good public space, right? But there's also something to be said about the design, right? And, and you mentioned something about design when it's good, it's, it, it just sort of like becomes invisible, right? But there's, there's a lot to be said about programming, right? And, and we touched on it a little bit before when you were saying, oh, you know, what is it about Gorilla that, that you don't like, right? And, and I think programming is something that is sometimes overlooked when it comes to placemaking. Because as designers, and, and I'm sure you know this, we take a lot of heat sometimes when, when people say, oh, you know, but you were involved in the design of this public space and now it's, <laughs> it's led to all of these like negative uses and, and, and negative aspects in our neighborhood. It's like, 
yeah, but that has absolutely nothing to do with my design. It has to do with the programming of the space. You guys forgot about it. Nobody, you know, nobody ever went back and maintained it or, or made sure to activate it in a positive way. And so it's taken over by negative, you know, activities and negative uses, right? And so I think that back to, you know, what, what becomes a successful or a positive public space is, is something that, you know, is constantly activated with good uses and good programming basically, right? Right, yeah, and that takes money, <laughs> which I think is something that is sometimes maybe not forgotten, but pushed till the end of the budget, right? Like there's a there's this budget up front for the design and implementation, but then it's not thought about like what happens in one year, two years, three years, five years, and both from a maintenance perspective for any, any kind of structure or public art or anything, but then especially programming, I mean, ideally, you would have this thriving space that kind of programs on its own. But even a place like Washington Square Park has like 20, 30 little groups that do their own programming. And that's why it's so activated. It's not, it may not be like a city run thing necessarily, or one bid running the whole thing, but it's these little pockets of groups creating their own little communities that make it so vibrant. And I think it takes stirring the pot to actually get that going. And usually that that takes money to actually start. Not that you need a lot of money to do programming, but you need you need at least a person who is going to want to create activities in the space. And uh, something that I've seen in a lot of spaces and, and that I've done myself in spaces is just utilizing the existing communities because there's always a community in, in any place and usually many different communities doing things like the soccer club is there, like kids need a place to play soccer or there's a, a group of moms that want to have like baby playtime or just there's a yoga studio down the street. And all of these people usually would love the opportunity to use a public space. It's just it's one of those like why not things where you don't really think about it. And then once you see some someone doing yoga in the park, you're like, oh, yeah, we should we should also do yoga in the park. But then some people might think like, well, do I need a permit or like, am I allowed to do that? And in every place, it's different. But just having that that person who actually does the thing, I think, can really help other people start doing things, which is one way to get around not having a large budget of programming, just mm -hmm. utilizing what exists in the area. Yeah. What are some resources that have helped you along the way in doing what you do? You know, just an unsatiable curiosity to hear other people's thoughts on something, you know, because I think that to your previous question, right, or to your previous point about programming, right, I think that, you know, what I've always enjoyed about placemaking or my own placemaking projects is, is this sort of like booby trap quality to them, right, is like prompting in what that means is like, the, the act of like prompting people with an opportunity to get involved in the creation of a space or a thing, right? And so what that happens is, you know, you, you oftentimes you get surprised with, with folks who, who maybe have never been asked and suddenly come up with like brilliant ideas, right? Mm -hmm. But when those ideas are enacted, then you have, you have a collaborator, you have, you know, you have a steward for life for that space, right? And I think that that, you know, goes a long way, right? Because as a designer, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. I'm going to move on to my next project, right? But if a group of people, these local champions, you know, that you were mentioning, take ownership of the space, 
they'll make sure to not only demonstrate the positive uses, but to be, you know, very opinionated about, you know, not using it in a, in a negative way, right? And I think that that's, that's, that's really important. So this idea of, of using placemaking as an excuse to bring people together so that they can share their ideas and then those ideas, you know, will sort of like plant the seeds to whatever will happen in that space is, is, is what I would call, you know, an important resource, right? So you, people as resources, right? Definitely. Is there anything that you've read or listened to or watched that's inspired you recently? Yeah, I do quite a fair bit amount of people watching and, and you know, when I walk the streets and, and look at, you know, how, how folks are going about their day and there's sort of like ideas and creativity that I've seen in the recent months is really inspirational to me, you know, in terms of how much people have adapt, adapted and have have changed their lifestyles and their ways of commuting and being outside and being with their families and sort of like absorbing experiencing and using their neighborhoods is is very inspiring to me and i think that that will that will lead to that is already leading to a sort of renaissance when it comes to how cities are going to shape themselves in the in the not so distant future and i think you know there's some really big changes coming when it comes to micromobility and how people are moving in cities, that is going to be really, really exciting. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, chatting with me today. <laughs> I'm excited for everyone to hear this interview. And where can our listeners find you online? You guys can go to any of the Fantastica, you know, like Fantast- at Fantastica Brooklyn uh, on Instagram. There's a lot more coming with Uni on Unipot. And I think that that that's also a good place to follow, you know, the work and projects. But, you know, an email saying hello also works. Awesome. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you again. It's been great to chat. Always super cool to talk to you, Stephanie. Keep up the good work, okay? Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.